Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to Psalm 48, as we do a very brief meditation on that psalm this afternoon. This won't be any kind of in-depth exposition, but just a brief consideration of the content here of the psalm. So Psalm 48 is a song of Zion. It's about the city where the Lord chose to place His name, the city that would be considered his dwelling place on earth. And as we know from scriptures like 2 Corinthians 6, 16 through 18, for example, that the church is God's chosen dwelling place, we see that psalms like this that speak of Zion, of, of God's chosen dwelling place, is, a, is really a poetic prefiguring of the new covenant church. And so it's still perfectly appropriate for us to sing these psalms because we're singing about the Church of Jesus Christ. The caption reads, A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And the Septuagint, that translation of the Old Testament into Greek, which uh, was available uh, to the uh, early church, which is available in the first century, and oft quoted by the New Testament writers, uh, uses the same words that Paul uses in Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16 for psalm and song. He says that we are to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So two of those words appear uh, right here in the, the title, or the caption of this psalm. Uh, this was written probably by sons of Korah, uh, men of the clan of Korah, of the tribe of Levi, who had the responsibility of singing in the temple services. And so that seems uh, appropriate that some of them might write some psalms on occasion. The psalm calls God's people to praise him for his dealings with Zion, his dealings with his people. In verse 1, really verses 1 through 3, Zion is presented as God's dwelling place and thus better than the dwelling places of other so-called gods. We'll see this. In verses 4 through 8, Zion is established forever by God. In verses 9 through 11, Zion is a place of rejoicing. And in verses 12 through 14, then, we see the glory of Zion as the city of God. So Zion in verses 1 through 3 is God's dwelling place. So verse 1 says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. The Lord is great, and He should be therefore praised, and He should be praised greatly because He is so great especially in the city where he has chosen to dwell. And so, of course, especially among his people, he should be greatly praised because he makes his city beautiful. He makes himself known in it. Verses 2 and 3 say, His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Really, that was the end of verse 1 and into verses, verse 2 and 3. Christ is even now beautifying his church, his bride, making her ready for his marriage supper and protecting her from the destruction that the world would bring upon it. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north. Notice that seemingly odd statement. Mount Zion in the far north. Well, that's weird. What was Zion in the far north of? It's not even in the northern part of Israel. Uh, So, why would the psalmist say that? Well, 
many Bible scholars point out, the word used here for north is the same as the name of a mountain in the ancient world. Well, it's actually still there. Uh, it's near the borders of modern-day Syria and Turkey, Mount Safon. That's uh, the word for north, Safon, which basically, from an Israelite perspective, in the direction of Mount Safon, that's north. Right? And so that's what uh, usually the term meant, northward. But it's, it's the name of a mountain. And it was considered the dwelling place of Baal, particularly Baal-Hadad, the storm god, the one who's most often uh, presented as a, his worship as a rival to the worship of the Lord in the Old Testament. And of course it was also the home of several other gods, but Baal was, was really the, the leader of them. He was a god of the Canaanites and the Amorites. And so in the far north is probably better translated as beyond Saphon. Zion is a joy beyond the dwelling place of Baal and other false gods because it is the chosen dwelling place of the true God. How much better is the dwelling place of the true God than the artificial religions that man makes up or that Satan inspires? Zion may appear smaller than Mount Safon, but God's presence makes it greater. No matter how weak the church might look to the world, no matter how weak it might appear at a given time, it is the strongest of institutions on earth. Because its, its strength doesn't come from earth. God dwells in her midst. Well, verses 4 through 8 then explain that Zion is great because the Lord of hosts has protected and established it. Enemies who try to destroy God's church end up trembling in fear in these verses. The, the schemes, both military and economic, against God's people represented the economic there to be represented by the ships of Tarshish that was usually thought of as trading ships that went far and wide. A ship of Tarshish uh, was most likely a ship that was thought to be able to sail at least to the Atlantic Ocean from the eastern end of the Mediterranean. Uh, Tarshish was is probably Spain, or part of Spain, anyway. But it was a ship that was built to travel a long way. So enemies uh, who scheme against God's people, whether they strive against them economically or militarily, are going to be brought to nothing. The psalm says, For behold, the, king, the kings assembled. They came on together. So leaders of the earth, right, coming against God's people. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. What are they seeing? They're seeing Mount Zion. right? They're seeing God's strength established, a place that's God's dwelling place. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. And then there's a sila there that tells us to stop. It's probably telling us to meditate. Think about the fact that God is in the midst of this city so that nothing that comes against this dwelling place of God can possibly prevail. It is established not for a short time like human empires and kingdoms are, but forever. Whatever the world brings against the church will ultimately be of no avail, for Christ builds his church. We were talking about this in Sabbath school this morning, weren't we? That, that if it were 
based on our strength, we wouldn't be able to build the church. Right? It wouldn't last. But it's not our strength, and we can take such confidence in that. It's Christ's strength that builds the church. He establishes it forever. And if he has promised to be in its midst forever, then it will not fail. So therefore, as we see in verses 9 through 11, Zion is a place of great rejoicing and praise for the goodness of our God. So we see that starting at verse 9. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Oh, how we can rejoice because of the good judgments of our God. How we can be glad because of his righteousness. Because his praise reaches not just the edges of the city, but to the ends of the earth. Not only does Christ beautify and protect his church, but he also will glorify his church. And that glory of Zion is seen in verses 12 through 14 then at the end of the psalm. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels. And so the the psalmist is asking people to look at the physical Jerusalem of his day, but we can look at the, the church of our day. But you may tell the next generation that this is God. Notice he doesn't say that you can tell... The next generation, look how strong a city man has built. What a wonder of human engineering. No, he says that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God forever and ever, he will guide us forever. God's preservation and beautifying and glorifying of his church redounds not to the glory of the church itself, but to Christ's glory, to God's glory. As our eternal God, our everlasting guide, and protector. Indeed, I mentioned the Septuagint earlier, that uh, ancient translation of the Old Testament into Greek. The, both that and the ancient Syriac translation and Jerome of Alexandria, who translated the Vulgate Latin uh, text, all of them render that last line, he will guide us beyond death. Maybe they had a slightly different Hebrew text they were looking at, Or maybe it was just a valid way to read what we just read. He will guide us beyond death. Not even death can keep the church from the glory Christ has in store for his bride. What praise and confidence we can take in that. So do take confidence in Christ because of that. For he has promised to glorify his church and none of his promises will fail. Well, so let's sing to the glory of God, to the glory of Christ who builds his church. Let's uh, turn our Psalters to Psalm 48, selection B now. Why don't we stand together as we close our time of afternoon worship. 48B.